for all that came out from, from our church to help out. Um, it was awesome. It was a great opportunity just to have some fun with people in the community, with each other, and to serve. And we, you noticed yesterday that uh, we were, uh, most all of us were wearing Vine shirts. Um, those are available over there. If you want to pick one up, feel free to go ahead and do that. Um, love for you to have one as long as you're going to represent when you're wearing it. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like one of those, you know, putting the fish on the back of your car. It's probably not the best idea because not all of us are the best drivers. So, you know, probably sends the wrong message. But anyways, if you're going to wear the shirt at, at, uh, at, <laughs> at opportune times and act like it, then you are welcome to go take, pick one up <laughs> and wear it appropriately. So <laughs> um, if you want to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, we are continuing our journey through this book, through the letter to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to do verses 1 through 13 this morning. Um, this is an interesting text, one that is, I'm sure, not often preached. Um, it's a difficult text, and so we're going to do what we can to walk through it and to talk about God's rest the rest that he offers to us, the rest that is now and that is in the future. We've talked about it a little bit previously as we've been walking through Hebrews, but there is this, as they call it, a motif, um, this theme, oftentimes with some of the things that are going on in this book, there is an already but not yet idea that's happening. Some things have been realized, but some things are going to continue to be realized at a certain point later on. So there is a some things have been accomplished, and then we'll see the fulfillment fully later on. We saw earlier in, in chapter 2 that Christ had defeated sin and death, but sin and death still reign in some capacity in this world. And so that already not yet is, well, Jesus has conquered death, but we haven't yet fully seen Him show His power in every single capacity so that there is no more sin and death. But that day is coming when there is no more sin and there is no more death, when there is no more crying, where everything will be made new and all will be right as it was originally. And so we continue to see that even in our text this morning, just talking about the idea of, of rest. So Hebrews chapter 4, let's read verses 1 through 13. And talk about it. Verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished, from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, 
God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So as we look back at at verse 1, it is important, and we're going to do this a couple times at the beginning, look at different verses in our text and see how when we put them together, the things that we're looking at make sense and the points that are going to be brought up make sense. I want to start off in verse 1 where it says, Therefore, and as you may have noticed, we looked at Psalm chapter 95 last week. And as we looked at it, we saw in chapter 3 of Hebrews that that was quoted. And it wasn't just quoted once, but it was quoted again. And we still have here in chapter 4 where it's quoted at least three more times. And so the importance of Psalm 95, again, when we look at chapter 3 of Hebrews, we have to realize that it flows into chapter 4. And so taking everything in context, again, is why he starts off in verse 1 of chapter 4 saying, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Now, the idea of a promise is important. Have you ever made a promise? I mean, it's likely that all of us have, right? You know, even as a kid, you know, parents ask you, will you clean your room? Oh, yes, yes, I will. I mean, it's, that's basically a promise. You don't have to say, I promise. It says, yes, I will do it. And so the parents are left to trust to say, yeah, okay, well, they're going to clean their room. And then three days later, find that, you know, the pile of clothes is only about three feet off the ground. <laughs> right? So sometimes we don't keep our promises. Sometimes as, as adults, we make promises. Um, you know, if I were to make a promise today and say, we're going to go to Knoxville and eat at a good Mexican restaurant, um, named Chewy's, of course, but, you know, if I were to say that to my kids, I, I would think that in making that promise that they would act in such a way as to believe that I was being truthful and that they would take their actions until we got there to Knoxville to actually eat, that they wouldn't have all these snacks because they like this food also. And so they want to make sure they've got room to be able to eat this food. And so they trust that I'm not going to have to take all these snacks with me as we go on this trip a couple hours away. But we are going to go on this trip and my parents are going to feed me when we get there. And it's going to be good food. And so I'm going to hold off and I'm going to save some room in my stomach so that I can eat all that I can with the Big As Yo Face burrito, which is actually what it's called. And so they're going to actually act in a certain way where they believe that promise. And that is what God has done time and time again as we see in His Word. God has made promises. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands. So the promise we're talking about here is entering His rest. 
And so what is this promise? Well, this promise was, in some capacity, a rest that we saw a little bit last week when we talk about the promised land. When we talk about, in the Old Testament, when God brought His people out of Egypt, and He said, I'm going to take you to this land. And that promise wasn't just right then and there when He was taking the people out of Egypt. It was hundreds of years before when He had promised that to Abraham and said, I'm going to bring your offspring back to this land and I'm going to make them a home and I'm going to be their God and they're going to be my people. And it took some time for that promise to be realized. But the fullness of that promise of rest was not just the promised land. Um, And and I want us to see as, as we look at this promise of rest that it is available now that this rest is available now. Look at verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, it says, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. So we who have believed enter that rest, and it remains for some to enter it. So this promise of rest is not just for those in the Old Testament. It is a now and a future thing. In verse 9, it says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains, right? We we just saw that word in verse 6 as well. There remains. It's not just these people in the past had this promise given to them and it was only for them, but this promise to enter God's rest was not just a physical land on this earth 3,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago, this promise of rest is something for us today. And this promise of rest is not just a physical rest, as we look to try and understand what this rest exactly is. Um, Look at verse 4. In verse 4, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So God's Sabbath, God's seventh day rest, whenever he created the world, God used six days to do it, and on the seventh day, what did God do? Genesis 2.2, God rested. So there's this idea of rest, and that there's this idea of God's rest continuing on, how we are still in some capacity in the midst of that time period of God's rest, how we have been able to enjoy the rest on God's seventh day. In verse 8, it says, it's not exactly rest because if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And so you get this idea that this wasn't just God's promise to the Old Testament people, to Abraham's offspring to the Hebrews, was not just a physical land. It says that right there in verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest. Now Joshua did take some people into the promised land. There were many, including Moses, as we looked at last week, who, who did not enter into the promised land. They did not actually, they were not able to see with their own eyes, enter into with their bodies, into God's rest physically in that land of Canaan. 
But that wasn't the only rest that God was talking about because it says, if Joshua had given them rest, which means Joshua didn't give them full rest. And that's not because Joshua didn't, you know, lead the people to walk around the walls of Jericho and, you know, then defeat all of the people that were living in the land of Canaan and drive out all of the people that God said he was going to drive out. It's the idea that God's rest is more. That God's rest, again, as we began seeing, that this is an already and not yet. We can have glimpses in this life of God's rest, but God's rest fully is not going to be understood completely until a future time. And so a couple things I want to focus on, and mainly I want to focus on that first aspect this morning where this idea of rest is particular and it is for us now. This isn't just some future thing that we have to hope for. This promise to us is to us. And this promise is not just for something in the future to happen. But this promise stands for us today. And that's why he talks about today. We've already seen this in the last couple weeks as we've been looking at Hebrews, especially in chapter 3. Last week, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And he quotes it again. Look at verse 6. We'll read verses 6 and 7. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We have an opportunity to experience some of God's rest today. The writer of Hebrews is talking to people 2,000 years ago, and he's saying to them at that moment in time, Today, you have an opportunity to enter into God's rest. Today, this promise is for you. This isn't just for your ancestors. This isn't just for your forefathers. This isn't just for some other group of people. This, is, this promise is for you, and it's for you today. And it's not just today as in you can understand it today, and one day you'll be able to realize the benefits of it. This promise is for you today, and you can realize the benefits of it today. We won't realize all of the benefits of it, because there is still sin and death in this world. There, is, there are still consequences to our disobedience. But what we are instructed to do by this author of Hebrews is to strive to enter that rest fully. Now, we pointed it out last week, and it's an important distinction to make, and something that you will never find in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, that the people who fell in the wilderness when they disobeyed God because they did not believe God, when they disobeyed Moses because they didn't trust Moses and they said, give us another leader, give us someone else. God, we don't trust you to do what you said you were going to do. We've seen all these things that you've done, how you've carried us out of Egypt through all these miracles and all these ways, we still don't trust you. And because of their unbelief, they were not able to to realize that promise of rest by entering into the promised land. That's why it's called the promised land, because it was a promise. It was the 
opportunity for rest for them, and they didn't get it. Now, the point is, they were saved in the sense of they were God's people. The ones who fell in the wilderness were still God's people. Nowhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament is it ever said that these people were not God's people. They were God's people, but they disobeyed because they didn't trust God, and so God didn't allow them to be able to understand fully what his rest was. They didn't allow, he didn't allow them to enter into that rest at that moment when they had it readily available to them. So this isn't God keeping something from his children because he's a mean God or because he's just dangling a carrot in front of them and pulling it away as soon as they get anywhere near close. No, this is the people who have been given every opportunity to trust God because of things that they've seen with their eyes and heard with their ears, that they've tasted, that they've touched, and yet they still didn't trust God. God made promises and He fulfilled those promises in front of their eyes, and yet they still didn't trust the additional promises. And so God said, there are consequences to that disobedience. And so they didn't fully enter into His rest. So before we see God's rest as being, you know, these people weren't saved because they didn't enter into God's rest, we've got to be careful to understand what the Bible has said about that wilderness generation. They were still God's people. And again, as we talked about last week, this is difficult for people like me to understand because I think that consequences are great. I love discipline, disciplining other people. I don't love personal discipline because I'm not very disciplined as a person, but I love bringing judgment on other people because I can see clearly how other people should be judged all the while saying, oh, I should be given grace and mercy all the time. Right? And just the disparity that we can have. And so we have to be careful to see how God has been so gracious by continuing to allow time and time again an opportunity not just for that wilderness generation to understand and enter into God's rest, but He has given us an opportunity again and again to realize the rest that He has for us. Now, I'm just going to go ahead, let's go there. Matthew chapter 11. Because I'm, I'm tired a bit of, of, of beating around the bush, so we're just going to do it. Matthew chapter 11. And at the end of the chapter... We have Jesus talking about rest. And so what is this rest that's available for us? As people who live in 2019, it's the promise that Jesus gave 2,000 years ago that still stands for us. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Why do, you, why do you think he calls them little children? He's not necessarily talking about humans of small stature, right, of, of limited age. He's talking about those like a child who believes the promises of their parents, who believes when an authority figure says to them, that's the sort of faith 
that he's been talking about before. And he calls them little children. He says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things, verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And here we come to a verse that I'm sure many of us have heard before. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what I want us to see in this rest is that Jesus, through his perfect life, and through his death on the cross, in my place, he has offered to me the opportunity to trust in what he has done, and that that is what will save me in the end. Not anything that I can do, not any works that I can perform, not any obedience that I can give to God, but only through Jesus and the work that he has done, am I able to be in a right relationship with God? Am I able to be considered a child of God only because of Jesus and his work? He's done the work that I couldn't do. He's done the work that clearly the people in the Old Testament couldn't do. He's been the once and for all sacrifice that the priests had to do year after year, never really taking away sin, just pushing it over onto the next year, just trying to soothe God's wrath for another year, for another opportunity, for later on. Not now, God, just put it on. Well, all that wrath came to a point, and it was put on Jesus. And so when I'm tempted to think that I've got to do something to earn being right with God in the first place, I fail to realize the rest that Jesus has offered to me to be right with him, to be one of his children right now, initially. But then, like the wilderness generation, the author in Hebrews tells us that we are to strive to enter that rest. That there is a concern that the author has that there are some who will not enter into a more realized understanding of God's rest in this life, and in the end times. And so I want us to, to make sure that we have it clear in our minds and in our hearts that initially there is nothing I can do to make myself right with God, only in trusting that Christ has done everything for me. And then realizing that from that I am then expected, commanded, entrusted to live for God through my actions, to continue to trust Him. We can be God's people and we cannot act like it. I mean, I was joking earlier about, you know, the t-shirts and, you know, the, the fishes on the back of cars. There are plenty of opportunities we have to not act like Christians. There are plenty of opportunities that we have to disobey God. And this disobedience, again, stems from our hearts. 
Look back at Hebrews chapter 4. Many of us have seen and maybe memorized verses 12 and 13 before. But I want us to not neglect the end of verse 12. I'm going to start reading in verse 11 in Hebrews chapter 4 back in our text. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So in case you're just wondering if I'm making this stuff up, this is what he's just said. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and, and catch this, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's so important. Lest we think that I can just do all of these things, number one, to try and make myself right with God in the first place, then I've misunderstood the gospel. But maybe I've got that part right, where I've understood that Jesus is the one who has done what I could not do, that He lived the life I couldn't live, and He died the death that I deserved, and that, that I've accepted that, that I've believed that, that I've trusted in that for my salvation. But then it continues on for us and saying, continue to trust that and continue to live as if you really, truly understand that and believe it. And the way that we truly show that we understand it and believe it is because our actions will flow from what our heart speaks, from what our heart understands. Our actions flow from our heart. We looked at that last week where the people disobeyed, but they disobeyed because they didn't believe. Their hearts weren't right. They were still God's children, but they weren't acting like it. And they weren't acting like it because they didn't trust God. And the Word of God, which is more than just these words on this page, but this is also a reference to Christ because... If you, if you think back to where we started, in, especially in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 of Hebrews, what were we talking about? Look at, look at chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God has spoken. God has given us words. To understand. And these words are what? Words that have come from Christ. This is, He is the Word of God. We referenced John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word completely. He was the final Word. All of God's promises led up to Christ, and Christ fulfilled all of the things that God had intended him to. And God spoke finally and fully through Christ. And as he spoke finally and fully through Christ, now Christ is looking at our hearts. He doesn't look at our actions first, but he looks at our hearts because our actions will flow from our hearts. And he says, where's your heart at? And is your obedience flowing from that? And I remember memorizing verses 12 and 13 as a kid and just being quite scared because 
And that's pretty serious. Read verses 12 and 13 with me again. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I mean, the, the picture here, as some have put it, is basically like a couple of wrestlers. And one of the wrestlers gets the other guy in a chokehold, and there's nothing that the other guy can do. He's completely defenseless at that point. You know, they got him in the full Nelson, and, you know, he's about to put him to sleep because he can't do anything else. His arms are just going limp. He's exposed. I mean, if there were a third guy tag teaming it, I mean, the third guy would come in and just start pummeling him, right? He's just exposed. And this is the idea. I remember memorizing this as, as a kid and thinking, wow, this is, this is intense. Like, I, I'm kind of scared. And I'm scared because there's nothing that I can hide from God. And there are things that I can hide from my parents. But I can't hide anything from God, and that's a scary, scary truth. And I remember as a kid thinking about this, and, and just the truth of, of that statement where, where God sees us and he doesn't just look at our actions because so often we want to just look good. We just want to, to look like we're doing what's right. We want to go through the motions so that we'll be accepted. But at the end of the day and throughout the day, what God is after is not just our actions. He's after our hearts. And if He has your heart, He is going to use that heart over and over again for His good pleasure. Philippians chapter 2 has a couple of great verses that I really love. And, and it's a difficult couple of verses because it, it talks some about God's work and our work. And it's easy, like many passages in Hebrews, to misinterpret and to misunderstand what Paul is saying in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, right? So you get that kind of picture again of not just trying to please your parents by the things that you do, but like by actually in your heart, doing what they're wanting you to do, not just trying to look good, how we can't hide stuff just because someone's not there, but God sees us, and Paul is mentioning that to his people that he's writing to. He says, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so we see verses like that, and we might come and question and say, well, if God finished His work, then why is it saying that He's still working? If I'm saved by faith alone, through Christ alone, then why is it telling me to work out my own salvation? Well, the idea is what we've been talking about last week and this week with the whole idea of rest. We are expected as God's children to obey Him. We're expected to work out our salvation, not fearing the consequences, but fearing the Lord reverently, fearing God in the way where we recognize that we can't hide anything from Him. 
and that this shouldn't put us into a panic, into a fear, into being scared of him, but it should put us into an attitude of recognizing that we can be freely open to him because he already knows things anyways. He already knows what's going on in our hearts, and so we don't have to try and hide anything from him because nothing is hidden from him. And so we can live our life openly because he already knows our lives. We don't have to be afraid of him. We don't have to be scared of him. But we recognize fully that he knows all and that we can't hide anything from him. And that he hasn't just left us to our own devices to figure this stuff out. He hasn't said, obey, good luck figuring it out. He said, as Paul says, for it is God who works in you. God's the one who is doing this work in our hearts. God hasn't said, trust me, and then left us to our own devices you know, and said, well, uh, I mean, I think this might honor him. I, I think this might please him. No, he's, he's given us his spirit as his children to speak to our hearts. He's given us his word, the Bible. He's given us Christ and his clear words to say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I, and I will give you rest. For, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But you see, there, there, is, there is a yoke, there is a burden to some extent. There is a work that he has us to do, but it's not just us by ourselves. It's, it's Christ in us, alongside of us. He, he's doing all the work, really. We're just being open vessels for him to be able to do that work in. And so the rest is not just a stagnant, okay, well, I'm saved, and so I'm going to rest by just sleeping the days away, by not doing anything, by not engaging with other people in the community, by just being happy to gather with the people that I already know and being content in the relationships that I've already got and doing the stuff that I've always done. Instead, God has put us on a path in following Him to continue to reach out to other people, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who we are in a relationship with and those who we have yet to become in a relationship with, to meet new people and to share Christ with them, to continue building a relationship with the people we've already met and to continue to share Christ with them. This is the work that God has given us to do as his people. And it's not because we can save people. It's not because we have saved ourselves, but it's because we know him who has saved us, and we know him who is able to save others. And so we want to share that message because they will never understand the rest of God if we don't proclaim the message of the rest of God to them. They won't know what it's like to, to cease from their striving to be right with God and with other people. We can spin our wheels quite a bit. But like a hamster I saw last night who was in his little cage and he had a little wheel and he started spinning it, we can spin our wheels and go a whole bunch of nowhere when we don't have Christ in us and with us. And so we've got to be careful that 
and striving to enter that rest, that's not just an additional command that we have to work so hard at that it's nothing that we can ever do or that we've got to earn all of these points up to this certain level so that now God says, okay, you've done all of these good things and so now you can enter my full rest. No, God is not like that. He's not saying, what have you done for me lately? He's saying, look at what I have done for you and what I have offered to you, what I continue to give you and what I continue to offer to you. He continues to say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. When you are tempted to trust in yourself, stop. Stop. Stop trusting yourself and consider Jesus. Look back to Christ and the work that he has done. And realize that this rest is not just a stagnant, ah, I'm okay with this life now. I'm saved and I believed and I've got that initial thing going for me. It's, well, that initial thing that has been given to me has changed my life. And because my life has been changed by Christ, I want to live to honor Him because He offered this to me when I had turned my back on Him. He offered this to me when I didn't deserve it. And that's what it means to be gracious and merciful. That's what it means for God to be slow to anger, to be abounding in steadfast love, where He still allows for the promise of entering his rest. And we can trust God because he was faithful to fulfill his promises. We'll see it again at the end of chapter 6, that God makes promises and he will fulfill them. And that entering his rest is a rest that we can understand now and that it is something for us to enjoy now and that it is something to continue to look forward to when there is no more sin, when there is no more death. And so I would encourage each of us this morning to as God has to rest from the works that we've done to try and prove ourselves worthy. To rest from a striving after to be trying to show ourselves that we're good enough. But to look to Christ who is good enough. To look to Him who was perfect, who was fully obedient, and to depend on him in our lives every day, that we would trust him, that we would trust him. Let's pray. God, Would you help us to trust you? 
you have given promise after promise, and you have fulfilled and fulfilled and fulfilled time and time again. And there are those of us in here this morning who are hurting. And I pray, God, that you would help them to know, to feel, to experience your rest. That this life is difficult, that this life is hard, but that you have given us your spirit that you have not left us to figure it out on our own. But you've given us a promise and you continue to meet it. And so would we trust that? Would we look back and see how you have been truthful? And as we continue to move forward in our lives, that we can see how we have been able to trust you and that we would continue to trust you. That's difficult to do. It's not natural for us. It is natural for us to trust ourselves. So help us to not trust ourselves. Help us to trust you and that you will continue to work in us, to work for your good pleasure, to accomplish your will. That when the burdens of this life bog us down, we would come to you as we're weary and heavy laden and that we would find rest in you. God, only you can do this. Don't let us find temporary relief, temporary rest in the things of this world, but help us to find it only in you that our trust would be fully and only in you. We pray in, in Jesus' name. Amen.